your, your mercies are new every morning, that, God, we get to come and celebrate you. God, I pray that you would just open our hearts this morning in a way maybe that, maybe that we haven't been willing to allow you to do, Father, when it comes to just hearing from your spirit, hearing your words, not my words, but the words of your, of, that you have spoken, that your spirit, how your spirit desires to speak them to us, um, God, and we thank you that it's powerful. Your word is wonderful and powerful. We're so thankful for your word. And as we look at it this morning, God, help us to surrender ourselves to you completely as we allow our, the word to speak to us, to challenge us, and to encourage us to be all that you desire us to be and to love you more and more. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, now I know by looking at it, by looking at me, it's probably hard for you to believe that I had some pretty severe multiple growth spurts as I was growing up. Uh, I know that's hard to, I know that's, that's hard, to, hard to believe. I know some of you guys back there can, can, can relate. Um, I would grow, there would be years that I would grow, you know, four, five, six inches in the year. And what that would do to me very oftentimes is cause a lot of pain. I don't know if you've ever experienced growth spurt pains before. And I, I had, I would get those. And the, what I would face, the issue that I would face, you know, the one thing, it was awesome being taller than all my classmates. That was the cool part. The disadvantage of this whole thing is I would experience these excruciating uh, growth plate pains in my heel in my heels. Sometimes it would just be excruciating. To one point, I remember one time I was in, I don't have very many memories of being of my childhood, but I remember in third grade, I remember I was really sore, really tired. And they said, go, I have this vivid memory of going out to recess. My heels were hurting really bad. I remember getting out into the middle of the playground and just collapsing. It's like, oh, thank you for that. (laughs) because I think I just got made fun of, but you get, uh, um, but yeah, my heel, I was in so much pain and I, it's like my, the, my legs just gave out. I was growing so rapidly, but there was pain that was involved in that for me, for me. And the truth is that although growth is a good thing, as with me, with my growth spurts can bring about difficult issues or circumstances in our lives. And this is true with our faith as well. It goes for us in, in our faith. Typically, as we grow in our faith, many of you have experienced before, you're growing and you think you got things kind of figured out with life and with faith. And then we begin to, you begin to encounter difficulties as you mature in your faith because you begin to, one, one area might be you, you start to realize that there's some areas of your life that no longer match what you believe about God. You start to realize, you know what? I need to make some changes, changes in the way I think. And I'm striving, as I strive to live out my life to please God, I'm realizing that, oh, wow, that priority needs to change. Or something's happened. You never had that feeling before? I know so many of you had. You've had that gnawing feeling as you're maturing in Christ. You realize something needs to change. Something, this is, and, it's not, and it's not usually comfortable, is it? It's usually not like, oh, wonderful, I get to sacrifice more. I get to die to myself more? Awesome. But it is awesome, because we realize how wonderful that is. And you know what, though? The same thing is true with church. The same thing is with the church. As, church. as a church becomes more and more healthy, Typically what happens, it finds that it needs to change or to retool things in order to accommodate the results of 
this, not only the spiritual growth, but oftentimes the numerical growth that they begin to face. I've been in churches like this before. I remember when I first came up to the Bay Area in 93, I came to a church uh, over in Foster City. It had a few hundred people in it, and it was a good, thriving church. I remember when we left six years later to go on the mission field, there was almost a couple thousand people at that church because they had grown so rapidly. You remember Neil, you were there. Neil was in my youth group. I was his youth pastor. Um, <laughs> and um, I remember being on staff though and the pains and the difficulties that we went through, through but being blessed by this kind of growth. Now, if you're taking notes uh, in front of you, if you want to, number one, in, in other words, if a church is doing what it should be doing in terms of making disciples, it will inevitably grow and begin to face issues that will force it to accommodate or make adjustments to that growth. Now, when I say grow, health in a church doesn't necessarily mean numbers, okay? Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that, could, that, that very well can be and oftentimes is. So that, that something very healthy is happening. But you could be in a church that's five miles wide and an inch deep as well. Or you can be in a small church that's the same way. But there are adjustments, usually adjustments and accommodations in a, that has to happen within a church. And these issues can range from everything like people, this is what, I, what I, I've experienced before that I always heard from a lot of people that the church, it, it feels less intimate, okay? I don't know people as well. It, feels, it just feels more impersonal or, or that people feel like their needs aren't being met or they're, they're not being met by this personal touch necessarily like by the pastor or by other ministry leaders. They kind of feel like, man, I'm kind of getting lost in the crowd here. Some people, sometimes in a church when it's growing, fat, when it's growing, even if it's just spiritually when they're growing, there, people will feel like resources are being poured into certain ministries instead of others that they feel are important. Like, wait, wait, we're, we're putting all our time and our money into this now? Wait, 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 wait a second. Or we're, we're changing things up? Wait, well, that doesn't make sense. I thought this was important to do. And so people find they, have a, they struggle with that stuff. The bottom line is that in, is, this is the way, and the, the, a lot of lives that is a church, that when it is operating and it is healthy, what's going to happen, it, it will have a difficult time keeping up with the demands of growth. When it is, when it is operating like it should, like I said, does that have to do, uh, that's not always just numbers either, but it'll, it can't, usually can't keep up with the demands of growth. That's what happens. And unfortunately, Oftentimes, if not dealt with, what happens is these issues turn into problems that can divide the church and really ultimately tarnish our witness for Christ. Some of you have been around that. Maybe those of you have been in this church for decades and decades. You remember that or you've experienced that before where you've seen that happen where an issue comes up and it's not being dealt with and soon people are squabbling or People are voicing their, you know, concerns maybe in a more, in a way that's very not healthy. We've seen that before. The reality is that with, with growth comes a degree of pain. Whether it's in our own lives, whether it's in our church life, there's going to be some pain. Well, this morning, as we continue in our study in the book of Acts, we come to a very serious issue that the early church was facing due to rapid growth. And really, it was one that if it wasn't dealt with proper, properly, it would cause major division in this church and really ultimately create a huge distraction for advancing the gospel. 
And I don't know if you're aware of this, many times this happens in churches and organizations and in people's lives individually. An issue comes up. Think about it even in our own lives. An issue comes up, and we, all of a sudden it becomes kind of like a thorn. And we realize all of a sudden we've been, after time goes by, we've been kind of just camping out, kind of just worrying about that or festering over that thing, and we haven't been moving forward in our walk with God. That's how the enemy works. The enemy is always going to try to plant some root of bitterness, some kind of distraction, anything to stop the advance of the gospel in our individual lives and in the world around us. He will always do that. Always. So that's why it's so important that it's dealt with properly. And this time we're looking at what's happening in the church. And what we're going to see is what this comes down to is people within the church using their gifts and the talents that God has given them in order to properly address this issue. Okay? So let's look at this issue. Let's look at the issue, chapter 6, verse 1. Let's just read the first verse real quick. It says this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenistics rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, if you remember in the last couple chapters, almost every chapter we've seen, and great multitudes were added to the church, remember? And great multitudes, they, they went to prison and they were beaten and they came back excited. And great multitudes, remember, the church is just exploding. It is just absolutely booming. But we got a problem. The growth has caused some kind of problem. This complaint arose where there were certain widows that were not being taken care of as they should be. Because see, in that day, widows were taken care of by the community when they didn't have family members around to take care of them. So something wasn't happening right. And what, it, what we see here is it seems like these, the Greek-speaking Hellenistic widows, who basically their heritage, what that means is their heritage was outside of Israel, were somehow being discriminated against when it came to being taken care of, okay? As compared to the native-speaking, Aramaic-speaking widows. So something was going on. Something wasn't right. And really what we can presume here, we can presume that this was an issue that was occurring along ethnic lines. Now, I know that never happens in our world today. <laughs> but see, right off the bat, look at an issue that the church was facing. A discriminatory issue had rose its head up in the early church, threatening to cause massive division and stall the advance of Christ and really ruin the witness that the early believers would have. So this was a critical issue for these early church leaders to address because ultimately, really, it spoke to how this young, new faith community's compassion could be measured by how it cared for the poor and the needy. Because it's one thing for us to say, I love God, I, I'm passionate for God, we're, we're all in on this, and then ignore the very things that God tells us to do, right? And what's one of the main things that throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that God has said is a major priority? Take care of the poor. Take care of the destitute. I have a special place in my heart for the hurting and the destitute and the poor, so for us to say that, yes, I'm all in on this God thing and ignore that is, is, just, is just crazy. It doesn't make any sense. So that's, this, is what's, this is what's on the line. 
This is a big issue that's on the line for, on the line for them. And, and also, how are they going to deal with these uh, different ethnicities within their church? How are they going to do this? What are they going to do? People that were born outside of Israel, they became Jews, some of them, or they were Jews, they be Jews, and they became into Judaism. They got into Judaism, and they really started getting into their faith, but they have these other practices that they're bringing in, and they're speaking different languages, and their culture mix is different, and they look different, and all that stuff. How can I handle that? Because you, as you and I know, this is a huge issue even today, isn't it? It's a huge issue. I mean, we can include in this the treatment uh, and how we treat women and how we treat children and how all these things. We can include so much in this. So right off the bat, the early church is having to address a very, very critical issue and how they're going to handle this issue of people feeling their needs were not being met was critical for the leaders. Now, Oftentimes, I think, you maybe you've experienced this before, when this happens in our churches today, when, when someone feels that their needs are not, are not being met, that their needs are being neglected, what do they do often? Yeah, yeah, true. Usually, they leave. Not all the time. They just maybe become disgruntled a little bit, or maybe they go talk to somebody about it. But very often what happens is people that feel like their needs are not being in the, in the, met in the church, and sometimes they're legitimately not, but what they often do is just go. And where we live today, is it hard to find another church to go to? That's a piece of cake. It's easy to find. It's easy to find. If, I, if I'm feeling my needs are being neglected... But so we often go find another church. That be, but back then, there was no other church to go to. They couldn't just go to another church. Um, typically, there was one church in a city that met all together at times, yet frequently in people's homes. So they were absolutely forced to have to deal with this issue. They're going to say, oh, we're going to start driving. We're going to start walking 200 miles to go to church. We're going to commute. They couldn't do it. It's just too far away. They had it. And really, I think this was a really good thing. This was a really good thing for the church to have to deal with back then. It forced them to rely on the Spirit of God to give them wisdom in how do we really love one another? How do we truly have unity with one another? Which is something, by the way, we've been talking about. We talked about this when we looked and we were talking about the church, and we've seen that Jesus said that this is actually our love for one another and our unity with one another is really a key element to people knowing who Jesus really was. So often we think, we think it's just about telling people about Jesus, which is super important. But Jesus over and over and over again tells us that our love for one another, our unity with one another is going to scream who Jesus is. It's going to help us understand, the world to understand who Jesus is. Remember, we talked about this verse before in his prayer. When Jesus prayed to his father, he prayed for basically all the believers there and future believers. He says this, he said, I do not ask for these only, just the people around me, but for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Powerful stuff. Number two on your notes, if you're taking notes, it's our love for 
and unity with one another that most loudly and profoundly declares the true identity of Jesus and my fan is unplugged. That's a tragedy. Okay. Okay? That's what speaks the loudest and most profoundly. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor and I want you to come to my church. I'm not saying that. Jesus said that. Jesus, that's why we still need to be involved in one another's lives in such a deeper way. So let's look. So let's, let's, keep, let's keep going there. Let's keep, look at verse 2. Look, let's, look, let's look at how they handled this sticky issue that came up. He says this in verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay? So recognizing they see the severity of the issue. That's the great thing. They see the severity of the issue. So the apostles gather the congregation together and they suggest this solution. They tell the congregation, say, let's select seven men to oversee the work of making sure that all these widows are properly being taken care of. Okay? Now, making, making this suggestion, what the, what the apostles are doing is actually a suggesting the, a solution that will keep them from doing things in the church that would distract from doing what God had asked them to do, what God had specifically called them to do, to preach and to teach the word to these young believers. Can you imagine what would have happened to the disciples? Like, oh no, the widows aren't being taken care of. I better go. I better, we, we, come on guys, you know, put on your aprons. Let's go, let's go make sure these with us. Let's be an example. Let's get up, you know, because we're the head guys and the head guys should do everything. So, you know, they get, we got to be an example to everybody. Can you imagine what's happening? What would happen? This is a new movement. This is a new explosion of God. This church is absolutely going crazy. What do they need more than anything? They need good spiritual guidance. They need teaching from the word. They need to understand what they've gotten themselves into. They need to understand the full breadth of God's counsel. They need to understand. So the disciples understand this is what we need to do. So pick some guys. So pick some people to do this, okay? And, it, and this isn't because the disciples saw themselves, well, we're the disciples. <laughs> Don't want to get these nice hands dirty. It wasn't, it wasn't that at all. They, they, knew, they, they were fine with serving. The reality is they understood their specific calling and their role. The solution, really what it does, it shows good leadership on their part. It shows good stewardship on their part. Many of you have jobs like this. You have jobs where you, have, you could easily go in and rescue, but then it would take you away from the important role that you know you have to do. I've been caught in this myself plenty of times in ministry. Back in the olden days when Neil was in my youth group, one of the, one of my, one of the big, that was a long time ago, huh? Well, um, one of the big problems was I had felt like I had to have my fingers almost in anything, in everything, I mean. I was doing everything. Ask my wife. I was gone a lot because I felt like, ah, yeah, because I, I can do that the best. I can do that. That was what a prideful, arrogant misunderstanding of what leadership is. So these guys understood 
something very, very important. They knew that someone else could fulfill this important ministry of making sure that the widows were being taken care of so that they could keep preaching and teaching, doing the very things that God has called him to. And you guys, this really speaks to why it is vital that every single one of us learns our role in the body of Christ and in the church. We need to know what is God called me to? What is my role? How should I be using my gifts and the talents that God has given me for the task of making disciples so that that task doesn't fall on a few and therefore become ineffective? Frankly, this is why I believe this is one of the main reasons the church in America is so anemic and ineffective at making disciples when it comes to disciple making. Instead of seeing the church as something that every one of us, that I am a vital part of and where the exercising of my gifts that the Holy Spirit has given me and the talents that I've been given are essential are essential in order to fulfill the mission of making disciples. We often, so often we see the church as a place that we go in order to have our spiritual needs met. But number three on your notes, too often we evaluate our church experience as consumers. What can I get out of this? What's in this for me? How is this going to meet my needs? Now, obviously, we need to be a part of a church where we're learning God's word, that is teaching God's word, that is being faithfully led. All those things are important. But if we're coming with this concept, I'm going to sit down in my chair, I'm be, the music better be good, Robin better be on her game today. I hope there's going to be songs that I like. Done with more people up there. I wish there was a wish there was like 17 orchestra people up here. Then I would be I would be excited about worshiping God if that were to happen. That's a consumer mentality. Nothing's wrong with having awesome, huge, wonderful, killer words. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if that is what I need in order to be able to worship God, I need to find the best speaker around so that I can be fed the way I think I need to be fed, that's a consumeristic mindset to the gospel, and it's sinful, and it's wrong, and we all lean towards it, as I'm pointing my fingers to myself. We all lean to a consumeristic mindset when it comes to church. Instead of, instead of how, should I, how should I be participating in order to not only be faithful in using my gifts, that the Spirit has given me for the purpose of building up the body, but for doing my part in advancing the gospel as a vital part of the body of Christ. We, that's the questions we should be asking. When we come here on a Sunday morning even, even though it feels like, well, look the way you've set this up, look the way we do it. I'm looking at the back of someone's head. I come in, I talk, and then I leave. But it's also a mindset issue. When we come to church on Sunday, do we come and say, okay, I just gonna, okay this is going to be good. I hope, or I hope this is going to be good. Or do we come and we say, you know what? I'm with God's people. I am a gifted child of God. And you know what? 
I'm going to do what God ever I can do to, to build up this body. If I'm an evangelist, I'm going to encourage my friends when I talk to them about sharing their faith. Or if I'm an encourager, I'm going to encourage the people around me. I'm going to do what I But most of all, I'm going to come on a Sunday morning with the attitude of a participant. Does that make sense? And I know that we haven't set it up there very. The church doesn't do a very good job. That's why we've talked about this whole gospel community and being involved in different areas because where everybody's gift is vital. Because if you come on a Sunday morning and just take and that's all you do, you're not really a part of the church. You aren't. And you're desperately needed. Desperately needed. We miss what you bring. You've been gifted by God to help with the mission of making disciples. And if you're not involved, we miss out because you're, you're, God, you're precious and you're amazing to God. And I think what happens is we get too consumeristic. The truth is, number four in your notes, every one of us who calls ourselves a follower of Jesus has a vital role to play in working together to fulfill our mission to make disciples of all nations. Now, I'm feeling something in the back of my head here, or maybe it's a look on my wife's face. No, I'm kidding. That, um, that uh, I don't want to guilt people into feeling like, well, I'm not plugged in. All I do is come on Sunday morning. I don't, I don't have time. for. I get that. I get that. But it's more about what's going on in here. More about what's going on in here. Is my heart, do I love Jesus? And, I, and do I so appreciate what God has done for me that I want to use my gifts, my talents that he has given me to build up the body of Christ? Now, there will be seasons in life when there's no time. I get that. You've gone back to grad school. You've, got, you've whatever that is, you're in that season. I get that. I totally get that. But let's not, you, let's not, Remember, let's not remember that it's what's going on in here. We're going to look at in a minute how God really does cause us to do things that we really never thought that he, we, could, we could possibly do because he is so big. I mean, the Apostle Paul, just to, I thought I'd throw this in here. You might know this chunk of scripture. The Apostle Paul really gives us a stark image about this whole idea when he writes to the church in Corinth when he says this. This is a chunk here. He says, for the bodies does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, what, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, I love that image, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But if that, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head, again, uh, uh, nor the hand to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and our representable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that, is lacking, that lacked it, 
that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care. Think about that. The same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying there, we do not need a church full of a bunch of robs. That would be horrible. That would be horrible. Because it'd be like this big eye rolling around, or a big, in my case, a mouth <laughs> rolling around. That would be terrible. That would just be terrible. We think, I'm not that, I can't do what they're doing. Who am I? But he's saying all members are important. And remember to the church in Ephesus, he writes this, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, and part means individual, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. So are you, are you starting to see how the dots connect a little bit here on how if Jesus is saying that the way that the world is going to know who I am, the way that the world is going to be able to say, whoa, I get it. One of the primary ways is when we are functioning as a body as we're supposed to function. And that means love and unity for one another and working together. That's what that means. So let me ask you, have you found your role in the body of Christ? Do you, know, do you even know how the Holy Spirit has gifted you and equipped you in order to contribute to the body of Christ, being built up in love? Because the truth is, no gift is too small. No gift is too small. No gift, and no gift is more important than any others. The point is that we're all meant to be faithful in using the gifts that we have been given. Frankly, and many of you know this, there is no greater joy than knowing that you are being used by God to contribute to building up the body of Christ, even when you're kind of tripping over yourself, like I normally feel. There's no greater joy than that. That's what, that's what we're made for. Now, notice the two main qualifications real quick here that these seven men that they are to choose in the ministry must have. Look what he says here, that they aren't looking, the first is they're not looking for men of influence or wealth or charismatic personalities who can speak well, who can do all these great things, good looking, all that. No, first they have a good or honorable reputation. Okay? In other words, there are to be men of character, men who are characterized by Christ-like thoughts and actions. Those are the men, kinds of men and women we're looking for to, to, to use their gifts and to, to be put in positions where they're going to influence others. That's why we uh, love to learn to be closer to Christ. That's why we want to be intimate with him, because it builds our character, our Christ-like character. Okay? Second qualification is that they must be men who have demonstrated a sensitivity to the Spirit's leading so that they will make wise decisions. In other words, they're looking for men here who evidence spiritual maturity. And so often we think, you know, what does spiritual maturity look like? Oh, because they, they say all the right stuff. They have all the right answers. That's not necessarily spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity includes a lack of pride. And, it's, and it's someone who's growing in grace, grace uh, towards themselves and grace towards other people. That is showing maturity, loving others. 
as we would love ourselves. See, appointing men with these qualifications, really what it was going to do, it was going to give the whole community a sense of peace that knowing this issue is going to be taken care of the best way. Don't you love knowing that whether you have a boss or a leader or something like that, that you can say, okay, I know that they're qualified. I know they care about me. They're going to be, it's all good. I don't have to worry. That's a great feeling, isn't it? But take the other side. I'm being led by a nincompoop. How does that feel? I've been in that role before as both a nincompoop and the being led by, as being led by. That's, that's a terribly insecure and horrible place to be and to feel. So they get, they, this would give them a lot of, of assurance and care. And it would also allow the apostles then to focus on what they had been called to do. And he says here to seek the Lord's will in prayer and in the word, which is really a vitally important aspect of anybody who leaves the church. Us, us elders, our lives should be to the place where our priority is seeking God through prayer and through the word in order to lead this church. Not because we're charismatic, not because we hold a position somewhere else, none of that. This is what the qualifications are for a leader in the church, okay? At least where my role is and the elders are here. Now let's look at the reaction. Check out the reaction that the apostles get from their their suggestion. Look at verse uh, five here. He says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and, wow, Parmenius, and Nicholas, whew, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So we see that this, this, the people in the crowd said, that's a great idea. Why did they think it was a great idea? Because they saw the wisdom in it. That made a whole lot of sense. Then they could have said, hey, who's the CEO around here? Who's the guy that's, got the, that's, that's really administrative? Let's just find him. Let's look for that person. I said, no. They looked for people that they know could do that job, gifted-wise, but also what were their qualifications spiritually as well? And what's also cool about this, despite little information that we have here, this was most likely a multi-ethnic group of men that were chosen. Because we know that Nicholas was of foreign descent, it says there. So this was a multi-ethnic group. So they they were wise in choosing this this group like this. So they set these seven men before the apostles. They commissioned them. They they, uh, lay their hands on them, which which really is recognition of God's call for them and saying, okay, these men have been called to do this. And let me tell you something. When I was reading this, it just jumped out at me. I believe that this is something that we should be doing for every single person here. We should do this for everybody. And this has crossed my mind that we to start, maybe start doing this, is to maybe have people come up every once in a while and have someone come up and say, hey, what do you do for a living? Oh, you, oh you're in the pharmaceutical. Okay, oh, tell us what that's like. What are some of the challenges and what are some of the uh, joys of being in that field? How can we pray for you? Okay, we're going to lay our hands on you and commission you as a missionary at your company. That's exactly what we should be doing. Because every single one of us here has been commissioned to be a missionary and to make disciples wherever God has us. None of this, we're just going to ordain the pastor. First of all, I don't want to get into politics of church, but you'd be hard-pressed to find that in the Bible, first of all. You would. 
We are all saints. We are all ministers of the gospel. No one is more important. I just happen to do this for a living. And it gives me the time then to spend it in the word and in prayer and things like that. But we're all called. So why aren't we having, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we laying hands on Dan as he goes to Kaiser Hospital in the emergency room in San Francisco? Why aren't we laying hands, especially on anybody that has any interaction with at least one person? And that's all of us. Jeremiah. Why don't we have Jeremiah up here lay hands on him and commission him as a missionary at one of the most popular surf shops on the coast? Sorry, <laughs> get $10, please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do, you see what I'm, do you see what we're getting at here? That's what we should be doing. That this, is, this is how important every single one of us, our role is in the body of Christ. Every single one of us. See, the important thing about this story is that this decision allowed the church to maintain unity and keep its focus on the mission of making disciples through the power and the work of Jesus because they understood their roles, that everybody has a role to play. Now, look at the result. Let's end with looking at the result here of what coming, the God, people's, God's people coming together and in a real sense teaming up in the service of God. Look at the last verse, verse 7. It says, and the word of God continued to increase. And the numbers of, there we go again. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests even became obedient in faith. So the result of God's people teaming up in ministry is this increased growth in the spreading of God's word. Number five on your notes here. The truth is that we only want, if we truly want the word of God to spread, if we want to make a difference for Christ, then we must work together by participating in the life of the body of Christ, by being willing to use the gifts and talents he has given each one of us. So important. The reality is that the advancement of the gospel is a team effort. It is a team effort yet, or, be, or better yet, kind of what we're talking about, a full body effort where every part is vital and necessary in accomplishing the mission. That means we encourage one another to be a part of that mission. There's never, been, there's never meant to be a place or a role in the body of Christ for onlookers or spectators. No such thing. No such role. It does not exist. You know, if you're like me, you watched a little bit of football this week. Maybe you didn't. But I watched a little bit of football, and uh, it made me think of that old analogy. You've probably heard it before about where the church is often compared to a football game of 60,000 people in desperate need of exercise watching 22 people in desperate need of rest. (laughs) And so often that is so true when it comes to the body of Christ. And I'm not just saying that oh, I know my gift, I'm going to go out there. You know your gift, and you're, that means that you're helping the others to be a part of something whole, not my own thing. It's a part of, I'm a part of something, as Jesus said, is so vital. The lesson for all of us here is that we are all meant to be in the game. Everybody's meant to be in the game. 
I mean, you look at the sidelines of a football, they're always focusing on the quarterback, talking to the coach or something like that. But think about all the myriad of other people that have these jobs that nobody knows about, nobody sees at all ever. And they are vital to the success of that team, of the mission of getting to the Super Bowl. Everybody. No one would say, all right, you know, all these other people, if you didn't make it on camera this season, you're out. What? That would be crazy. Everybody is vital. What this story in the book of Acts shows us, last one on your notes, is that ministry that advances the gospel extends beyond those called to participate in the more, quote unquote, upfront, glamorous, or recognizable ministries. Okay? We all have been gifted by the Holy Spirit and are empowered by the power of the gospel to make a vital contribution to making disciples of all nations. So how are you supposed to know what your part is? How do you know? How are you supposed to know what exactly your part is? Or do you think you know what it is, but maybe there's more to it? Or maybe there's something else. How do you know? How do you know for sure how you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit? Because here's some things that we don't think about sometimes. So often we think, this is how I've been gifted. This is my gift. This is how I'm going to use it. And God the whole time is saying, there's more. There's more. I got something else as well. Or it, it's time for a change. Or whatever. We, how, do, how do we know? The first thing is we get in the game. We get in the game by fully surrendering every area of our life to Jesus, even our desire to use our gifts, even our desire to use our gifts and talents, okay? We even surrender that to him. We need to be willing to do whatever God calls us to, even if it seems a bit crazy and ludicrous at times, because we want comfort, don't we? Okay, you showed me my gift. This is what it is. This is my lane. And God might be saying, got a few more lanes for you. Or I need you to shift lanes a little bit. I love this quote. Have you ever heard of uh, Henry Blackaby? Very famous, came out with um, uh, uh, no, but what was it called? Uh, Experiencing God. Listen, Listen to what he says here. He says, we don't choose what we will do for God. He invites us to join him where he wants to involve us. Will God ever ask you to do something you are not able to do? People always say, God will never ask you to do more than you can handle. I love this. Will God ever ask you to do something you're not able to do? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. All the time. All the time. It must be that way for God's glory and kingdom. If we function according to our ability alone, we get the glory. If we function according to the power of the Spirit within us, God gets the glory. He wants to reveal himself to a watching world. Ooh, that cuts a little bit, doesn't it? Sometimes when we think, I'm doing pretty good with this gift that God has given me. (laughs) Right? God says, it's not about you. There's more. There's more. The other thing we do is we, ask, we regularly ask God how and where he might be wanting to use you to make a difference for Christ by using your gifts and talents. I would encourage you to do this, you guys. Even though you think, hey, I know my role. I know what I think. This is what I can do. It's just kind of like, like giving, right? Kind of like financial giving. Hey, this is my budget. This is what I can give to God. Really? Is that the way we're going to go about it? 
It's the same thing with our gifting. This is what I know I can do. This is what I know I'm set up for. This is what I'll do. God said, there's more. There's so much more. And I want to get the glory by using you. Simply, oftentimes what we need to do is just jump in. Jump into areas where after we've been praying this prayer that God is kind of nudging us towards. Even if we're going, ooh. Chances are if you're going, ooh, do it. Okay, because there's a chance. Every, I'm nervous every single Sunday morning I get up here, just so you know that. You need to know that. Water, fan, all that is because of nerves. It is. That's just who I am. That's how I'm wired. So if, I'm, if it's scary, should I stop doing it? Not at all. Not at all. So often God is calling us to do things that we are just, we just feel like that's not who I am. And and God's saying, that isn't who you are. It's who I am. I've got something amazing for you. Don't listen to those lies. Don't listen to the lie of comfort. Don't listen to the lie of this is where my life is, or God can't use me, or blah, 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 blah. Don't listen to that. Lean into Jesus. Lean into friends and others that can speak the truth into your life and help move you and press you and push you into the truth of Christ. And how he wants to use you to be a part of his mission. To get in the game. Because he wants to use you for his glory and your good. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word that shows us things that just go so against our human nature that are so good. Thank you, God, that you desire to use every single believer in this room to build up the body for love and for unity so that God the word your word would spread and that people would hear and that people would know about Jesus God I pray for those my friends in this room who are feeling as if they're just not worthy or that they're too scared or they're not enough I pray, God, more than anything this morning that you would show them that you are enough. You are our refuge. Suffering for you is a joy. It's a privilege. God, we desire more of your love, more of your power, We desire, God, you to show us how we can live more and more wholeheartedly, unreservedly for you. In Christ's name, amen. As you we go.